David Levithan and Rachel Cohn's Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist has so many things that I would have loved when I was a teen reader. Main characters who are quirky and cool, but also outsiders, New York City, music, New York City, a romance that starts off shy but ends up steamy, New York City. Did I mention I was really into all things New York City when I was growing up? Well, I was. Despite the fact that this book in some ways feels like it was written for my teenage self, I actually never read it. I finally got the chance to experience it for episode 113 of SSR, and I'm really excited to share that experience with you today. In our conversation about this 2006 YA title, my guest and I hit a lot of interesting topics. What I learned about the author's writing process, the safe worlds they've created for their characters to play in, the straight edge movement, the evolution of our vocabulary around queerness and gender fluidity, the normalization of many types of physical intimacy, the emotionally piercing quality of YA, emotional power dynamics, and the way sexuality is often leveraged against girls. We also take a close look at that hotel makeout scene. If you've read this book, you know exactly what scene I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, that one. Oh, and for an SSR first, Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion get a shout out for WAP. My guest today is Sarah Wendell, the co-founder and current mastermind of SmartBitchesTrashyBooks.com, one of the most popular and longest-running blogs examining romance fiction. Sarah is also the host of Smart Podcast Trashy Books, now in its 10th year and featured in Oprah Magazine as one of the 21 best book podcasts to listen to when you're not reading. Sarah is the author of Everything I Know About Love I Learned from Romance Novels and Lighting the Flames, a contemporary Hanukkah romance novella. She is the co-author of the book Beyond Heaving Bosoms, The Smart Bitch's Guide to Romance Novels. Learn more about what Sarah is up to by following her on Twitter at SmartBitches, on Instagram at SmartBitches, and on Twitch at SmartTwitches. If you frequent the show notes for SSR, you may already know that Smart Bitches Trashy Books has been one of my go-to references since basically the beginning of SSR, so it's a pretty big deal to me to have Sarah on the show today. Thank you, Sarah. Not sure what I'm talking about when I reference those show notes? Well, each week in the show notes, you can find links to the cool things my guests are doing, links to the books they recommend at the end of every episode, and links to more cool resources about the book discussed on the show. I am telling you, if you can't get enough of SSR, the show notes should be your next stop. Find the show notes for this episode at www.ssrpodcast.com slash listen slash episode 113. You can also get more SSR on social media. Follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SSRPod and find us on Facebook by searching The SSR Podcast. There are lots of fun things happening in SSR's smaller Facebook group as well. This week, one of the members of that group is sharing her experience reading this lullaby from episode 110 for the first time. I also offer one month's worth of episode previews there so you can really read along with the show, plus fun things I find about the books highlighted on the podcast. Find that group on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast Community. I'm an independent podcaster, which means I operate without the support of a larger organization. This means that I have that much more appreciation for your support. Here are a few ways to show your love for the pod. One, leave a five-star rating or review on your favorite podcatcher. Two, share the episodes you're listening to and loving on social media. Instagram stories is an especially easy platform for this. Let me know there what you're doing while you listen. Three, get your SSR stickers, bookmarks, shirts, and tote bags at www.ssrpodcast.com shop. And finally, number four, join the SSR Patreon community. The Patreon platform allows you to take a really active role with the independent projects you love, which is super cool. With Patreon, you contribute a few dollars every month in exchange for exclusive rewards that superfans are just going to love. 
SSR patrons get things like SSR swag, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, voice notes from me, personalized book recommendations, and more. Plus, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling that comes with helping something you love grow. For more details and next steps, visit www.patreon.com slash SSRpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page. Thanks so much to all of the Patreon sponsors listening now. Thank you also to my friends at Libra FM for continuing to partner with SSR. As my grad school reading schedule picks up on top of my reading list for the podcast, I'm getting a little nervous that I might never have time to read just for fun again. When I brought this up on Instagram a few days ago, many of my followers mentioned that audiobooks could be the perfect solution, and I think they might be right. Personally, I only buy audiobooks from Libra FM because it allows me to support independent bookstores instead of giant corporations in the process. The audiobooks are exactly the same as the ones you would purchase from those big guys, and they're the same price too. Plus, SSR listeners can cash in on a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libra FM. Go to Libra FM, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Once you're there, you can choose the independent bookstore you'd like to support with your purchase. Small businesses need us now more than ever. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to SSR. Hello there. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you on for so many reasons. So I actually don't know if I told you this, but Smart Bitches Trashy Books is one of my like go-to resources, especially for our New Reads November series, because over the last two years, you've covered some of the books that have come up on the podcast in those New Reads November months. So I'm so excited to actually get to talk books with you live and kind of in person on this podcast. Thank you. That is really nice to hear. I really appreciate that. How cool. I know. And listeners, if you are not familiar with Smart Bitches Trashy Books or Sarah's podcast, all of which I promise I will be plugging again at the end of the episode, you need to go check them out. They are so fun. And I feel like you and I just kind of have a similar way that we like to talk about books and we like to examine them in in sort of a similar fashion. So it's really exciting to have you on for this episode. I'm really excited to do this. So let's do it. We are talking about Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. It is a collaboration between two authors. Rachel Cohn and David Levithan, and it was published in 2006. And I know you and I were chatting via email as we were choosing a book to talk about, and I believe you mentioned that you did not read this book prior, um, but I'd love if you could share a little bit maybe about why this was your choice. I think maybe I kind of pushed you into it, but if there were other reasons that you decided to go with this one, and maybe if you had any familiarity with it before, even if you hadn't read it. No, I had read it. I read it and reviewed it back in 2007. Oh. So the site was co-founded between me and Candy Tan, and she 
also read it and wrote a review on Smart Bitches that was in 2007. I did a review for a online television channel. I think it was romancenovels.tv. And I did a video review of it. I basically just squeed nonstop probably for like 25 minutes. I'm sure it was a hellish edit because I was really (laughs) into it. My review doesn't exist online anymore, but I remember liking it to the point where even though... I have a terrible memory. Like there's a feature on our site called Help a Bitch Out where people email. I remember this one plot detail where there was this guy, but they were in a carriage and I think there was a duck, but I don't remember what romance it is. That's like my whole brain. I will remember (laughs) no titles, no authors, nothing. But the minute I saw the title and author listed on your survey, I went, oh, I loved that book. Like I had just instant good book noise memories with with this book. And I'm I think part of that was that it was made into a movie, which I then saw. I have such fond memories of this book, and I really enjoyed rereading it. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. I don't know why I had this whole narrative in my head where, like, (laughs) where you hadn't read it, and I had sort of, like, encouraged you to read this one. I don't know where that came from. Isn't it weird how we talk ourselves into these weird stories sometimes? Oh, totally. I do it all the time. Yeah, I was like, I think Sarah didn't didn't really want to read this, but I asked her to read it. Oh, this is so much better than I even remembered or even anticipated it could be. So you had warm fuzzies about this book even before you came back to it. I had never read it. So it came out in 2006. I was 16 at that time. Um, and I think as, as many of our listeners will know, at that point, I was such a snob and was like, I don't read YA. Like I'm reading adult books. So I sort of have this gap in my own like YA experience between probably when I was about 14 and when I was maybe 24, where I just was like too cool for YA. And I feel like that was such a rich time for YA books. So I'm kind of mad at myself for not actually just going with it and like embracing <laughs> this category. Like that was so rude of me. I can't believe it. This book was extraordinary even at the time it was published though. Now to give you context, I'm a little older than you. I'm 45. So I read this when I was 31 and I remember reading it when I had one of my first child. I remember reading it when he was a baby. And I remember reading it while I was holding him. Like I have very sensory memories of small baby, this book. Aww. And the fact that the good book noise and the good book feelings continued from 2006 till now is astonishing. I hope you have as good memories of this book as I did then and now. So I I really loved the writing of it. And I'm anxious to talk through the plot a little bit more with you because I kind of went back and forth. There are a lot of things that I loved about it. I thought the writing was just so beautiful. I could have read this language like over and over and over again. They're such excellent writers, both Rachel Cohn and David Levithan. For some reason, I found the story a bit confusing and I'm not sure why. Like, I don't know if it was because I was reading it in COVID times. And I do find that sometimes I've been having trouble following plots during this bizarre era that we're all living in. So I, maybe I'll blame it on that. But all in all, I I did really enjoy the reading experience. One thing I wanted to mention before we really dig into it is the story behind how the book was written, because I found that was really fascinating. And I knew a little bit about it before I started researching for our conversation. But I found this really interesting article from NPR called The Real Couple Behind the Infinite Playlist. And it came out in 2008, sort of around when the movie was released. There was this whole other kind of like wave of, uh, of think pieces and articles and essays about this book that came out right after the movie. And this NPR piece was an interview with Rachel Cohn and David Levithan. They talk about how Rachel Cohn got the idea for this book while she was walking around the reservoir in Central Park. And she didn't know that much about how she wanted it to go, but she had this idea that it would be a story that took place over one night in New York. And she wanted to voice the female main character, and she wanted to have another author voice the male main character. And she was like, I know I'm a great YA author. Side note, we've done another episode about her book, Gingerbread, which is really great. But she wanted to have 
a man come in and, and write from the male's perspective. And so she called David Levithan and they literally just passed chapters back and forth. So they really had no idea where the story was going. She would write a chapter and then she would email it to him and then he would write one. They talk about the fact that sometimes it would just be within a few hours that one would, would like write the chapter and send it to the next. So this book was written fairly quickly and they had no idea like how they were going to get from point A to point B or what even point B would look like. So I just, I find that kind of behind the scenes stuff so fascinating. I did not know that. That's really cool. Yeah. Isn't that cool? That is very cool. I know a lot of authors who are duos or co-writers will send chapters back and forth and each one will take the perspective of a specific character and they'll alternate. But I had no idea that the writing of the book was so immediate as, as, as immediate and happening right now as the plot of the book. I mean, that makes sense now that you say it. Like, well, of course that immediacy and that energy is present because that's how it was written. But that's so cool. Yeah, I loved that. And they also talk about how the hardest part about it was the music references and they came up with these sort of rules for themselves where they wanted to make sure that all of the music references could stand the test of time and so the rule mm-hmm. of thumb they went by was the bands that they mentioned either had to be timeless because they were so good or timeless because they were so bad <laughs> which I thought was great <laughs> I remember reading when the movie came out that the Where's Fluffy band mm-hmm. was based on Death Cab for Cutie yeah which is funny because they really didn't become more mainstream until a little bit later. Yeah, that's well, because I remember falling in love with them around when the OC was the hottest thing on TV because they yeah. were on all the OC soundtracks, which I had and like cried for hours to in my room because I was a teen and that was what I did. They're very peppy emo. Yes, very peppy. I think I could go back and probably still remember the words to a lot of their songs, but I felt very cool being like a Death Cab girl, even if it was only because of the OC, (laughs) which is really the only reason I was a Death Cab girl, if I'm being honest. So that's kind of the story. I thought that was really cool, and I will link to that article in the show notes for those who kind of want to read a little bit more about what they had to say. But let's talk about the setup for this book. So um, we meet Nick, we meet Nora. They are both at this club in New York City. Um, Nick is the only straight member of a queer core band. That was actually a term that was new to me. It felt very much of like the mid-aughts kind of time period in which the book was written. So um, I love just this feeling like within a couple paragraphs, I felt so set in 2006. It just, I, I felt like the language and the references, it just brought me right back to that place. So Nick is there playing in his band and then Nora is there just kind of listening. What were your first impressions of them getting back in touch with them in this reread? I loved the way in which the book opens up and he's in the music. Yeah. Like he's into what he's doing. He's totally in the zone. He's 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 experiencing like a state of total flow. He's really into it. He's connected to his band members and, and it was very real. And I felt like, oh, okay, I get it. I get where you are. That's not a thing that I experience. I don't play that instrument, but the, okay, I'm with you. And then it, he gets yanked out of it the minute he sees his ex-girlfriend. Yeah. And I'm like, oh yeah, I remember that too. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. Everything's over when the ex comes in. Yep. And I love that they each have a problem that they're trying to manage and they're trying to pretend like everything is okay when they're really, really hurting and stressed and tired and a little scared. And I was like, yep, I remember that too. Now, I was not allowed to go out all night. No. Certainly not in Manhattan growing up. I grew up in, first of all, I grew up in Pittsburgh, but my cousins grew up in Manhattan and they would tell me stories about how they would go out and like the city, the whole city was their was their playground when they mm-hmm. were teenagers. This was a normal thing. And I was like, oh, 
is this what it's like when you grow up and you're cool? Because I was not cool. <laughs> and yet both of these people think that they are uncool. Yeah. And I'm like, this is fascinating because I was never allowed to do anything like this. And I'm a parent of teenagers now. And I'm like, I don't know if I would let my kids do this. I got to really think about that. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because if I'd read this when I sort of at the time when maybe it would have been appropriate right after it came out in 2006, I would have been like, these are the two coolest people I've ever heard about in my entire life. I was obsessed with New York. I grew up in Pennsylvania, not on the western side like you. I grew up on the eastern eastern half of Pennsylvania. I just dreamed of moving to New York, and I thought that everybody's life in New York was just like Nick and Nora's lives in this book. Like I thought everybody was out all night, just having fun and exploring. And the yeah. funny part is, is that like I lived in New York for eight years. I did not once stay out all night. But as a teenager, I would have been like, this is totally me as a New Yorker. Like I would absolutely stay out all night listening to music. <laughs> and I never did that. I don't, I can maybe count on one hand the number of times that I saw live music in New York. And that is sad. Like, I'm not proud to admit that. I never wanted to go out. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't like crowds. Me neither. I don't, I don't like, I, okay, first of all, now that I'm older, I really like sleep. Like, sleep's like my favorite thing. <laughs> but even when I was a teenager and I stayed up late, I would sleep a lot afterward. Right. I remember so clearly being in college in South Carolina and turning 21 and being like, wow, I can go out legally now. Why would I do that? Right. My clothes smell like smoke because you could smoke in bars and restaurants then. I'd have to go clean my nice outfit that I wore out and now it smells bad. My whole dorm smells bad. I smell bad. I'm tired. I have no money because it was so expensive. I couldn't hear anybody. My throat hurts from yelling. Like, why was this fun? This was not fun. So clearly I was always an introvert who didn't want to go to clubs and bars. I would never want to go to a concert like this the way they do. My ears would hurt from the loudness. But the part where they are in a community that is just theirs. Yeah. And like she has special access because of who she is. And he has access because he's in the band. And they're not technically supposed to be there, but they're there. Like that was so cool. Even though I personally wouldn't want to do any of those things, I still kind of wanted to be that cool. Right. Well, we both have book podcasts, so I think we know where we yeah. stand. <laughs> we're, very, we're very cool. Absolutely. We're the coolest. Right. It's very obvious kind of where we fall here. But no, I love I love the way you describe that. It's, it's like they're part of this very secret inner circle, and, and somehow this access opens up to each of them for different reasons in a way that I think any teen would just wish for. So Nora is the daughter of a big shot music producer. She lives in a very affluent town in New Jersey and sort of spends most of the book kind of like, I felt wrestling with what that privilege means. Like, what does it mean to have access through your parents? There's a part of that that she really likes. There's a part of that that she's almost ashamed of, which I think is something that a lot of us maybe are dealing with right now as we examine things like privilege in our own lives. I sort of felt her dealing with that in a very specific way in this book. And so that's why she has access. She seems to kind of know where all the cool places are in New York. She knows who's going to open the doors for her. She just like knows her way around. And then we have Nick, who's from Hoboken. And I, I loved all like the New York, New Jersey references. This uh, book was, was so Jersey. It was so Jersey. I loved oh, it Jersey. so much. My mom grew up in New Jersey. And so even though I, I I lived in New Jersey for a few years when I was in middle school, but I like, I'm not personally somebody who's from New Jersey, but I feel like I kind of am because of absorbing everything that my mom's told me and then being in New York for so long. Um, it was so Jersey and I loved it. You had like the fancy New Jersey that Nora was from and then you have like the Hoboken, New Jersey that Nick's from. Which is hilarious because now Hoboken is like 
the fancy part. Right. Hoboken is ridiculously fancy now. Like yeah. I, I lived in, so I lived in New Jersey for a really long time. About five years ago, we moved to Maryland, but I lived in New Jersey for 15. Wait, 1997, we moved to New Jersey, and then we moved down here in 2015. So quite a long time. That's a lot of math, and I'm not going to do out loud because I'm bad at it. And it's Monday, so you don't need to pass. Forget it. Yeah. Forget it. So... I lived in Jersey City, and I worked in Manhattan, and then we moved out to the suburbs. So A, all of Nora's snide comments about different suburbs absolutely delighted me because it was dead on. And the part (laughs) where he was talking about being from Hoboken, and it meant something different at that time than what it means now, all it was so Jersey, was so dead on. And, And the idea that they had to get back to Jersey... It's right there, but it's so far. Yes. It's so far. It's right there, but you've no idea how far it is until you've spent a lot of time trying to get in and out of Manhattan. The other thing I love about her access is that she has all these places where she knows she's safe. Mm-hmm. Like she can go to this club and these people know her and will look after her. And she can go to this club and it's her dad's like ex-friend. She has places where she can go and she knows that she's safe but she still has freedom and autonomy. Yeah, that's true. That puts her in a really unique situation because I think most young people in New York, I mean, even when I was in my 20s in New York and was finding my way around, I didn't always feel that way. And so it's kind of this powerful thing that, yes, she's doing these things that maybe we would perceive as like a little risky, a little dangerous, but she's like, I'm fine because all of these people know me. And, And she really does seem to be fine. Like, I think in another book, we may have seen more like, situations of peril with these two Mm -hmm. teens running around New York. But of Mm -hmm. all of the drama they experience in this night, there's not a whole lot of that outside of like the car breaking down and a couple of other moments. But it's it's not really this like cautionary tale at all of what happens when two young people are like left to their own devices in the city. It's not adventures in babysitting. They're not going to scale the outside of a building and be chased by monsters or anything. No. No. And the thing that I loved about this book at the time and the thing that I like about it now is the absolute unabashedly matter-of-fact queerness Mm -hmm. of so much of it. He's in a queer core band. They're surrounded by queer characters. I really liked how matter of fact queer so many of the characters surrounding them was because that's in 2006 2007 that was quite a thing there wasn't a lot of like now there's so much queer ya it's wonderful there wasn't as much then but also the fact that they were so accepting and everything was just sort of he's with him and he's with her and Mm. she's that that was all very normal it also created an understanding of I'm going to take care of you, you're going to take care of me, we're going to have each other's backs. And then other characters have Nora's back. Like there's that one scene where she, where the hostess, I think, at the club they go to is like, so do you, do you know who her dad is? Mm-hmm. He's like, I have no idea. And she's like, good, excellent. I like you even more now. Yeah. Like they're all watching out for her. And <laughs> my favorite part is, so one of the pieces of conflict is that Nora has to look after her friend who has a serious drinking problem. Yeah. And has to take care of this person in a way that is a lot for a teenager to handle. And she feels like she has to. And there's a lot of reasons why she's in this position. Nick's two friends in his band are like, we will give you money to take him out and we will take your friend off your hands. We will take care of her if you will take care of him. We each have a problem that we need to help our friends get out of. Yeah, I loved that. They instantly, like, it's the, you know how when you meet people and you just resonate with them immediately? Like, okay, I get you. Yeah, you're my people. 
you, yes, you're my people and you are authentically yourself in a way that I understand and respect immediately. Like you almost catch that vibration of them being their real selves. They recognized each other immediately and were like, okay, we're going to take her you take him and it's going to be fine. Yes, I and agree. I love that instant trust. It was like, you people are so great. Yeah, they Please were safe. good Please friends. Yeah, be safe, good friends, be safe. And to your point about the matter-of-factness about all of the queer characters and this very comfortably queer community that they were living in, I loved that, especially in 2006. I'd, I'd love if you could share a little bit. I mean, I wasn't sure how I felt about a few moments. And again, I think this book was largely extremely matter-of-fact, as you mentioned, in its depiction of LGBTQ plus characters. There's not a lot of room here to be like, oh, like, does, do the authors think this is okay? Like, the authors are like, yeah, these are just people. They're having relationships. They're being who they are. Awesome. Which is something that I love. I was just thinking about the fact, I think in 2020, there are a few details about their time at that club. I believe it was called the Playboy Girl Club that I think maybe would have been written differently. And I don't say this as a criticism. I say it more as like, hmm, I wonder how it would oh, be no. today, especially the way that they write about this one character who I, I believe you mentioned is like the hostess or the host or the bouncer is how this person is described. And Nick isn't quite sure how to kind of like spell this person's name because Nora introduces them as Tony, but it's very clear that Nick isn't sure whether this person is in a very like heteronormative binary way, a man or a woman. Mm -hmm. And so he spells out this name in three different ways on every reference. So it's like Tony, T-O-N-Y, Tony, T-O-N-I, and then Mm -hmm. Tony, T-O-N-E. E, and he uses different pronouns with each mention. And I thought that was really interesting. I think maybe in 2006, it was maybe like the best that these authors could do, given the vocabulary that a lot of us had around this. But I did make note of it. And I was thinking about how it might be different in 2020, especially because I know that David Levithan has written some really interesting books about gender. I don't know if you're familiar with his book Every Day, um, but it was written, I believe, in like 2012 or 2013. Mm-hmm. And it's about like a genderless character. It's really interesting. It's beautifully written. And so I was just thinking about how if he had to go back and kind of readdress some of those scenes at Playboy Girl, how he would do it. I really don't know. I think the Tony, Tony, Tony was a reference to the band. Oh, yeah. I think that was sort of like a reference to the 80s. Like, it was an 80s, 90s band. I think the reason I, the reason I remember that name is that they had, Tony, Tony, Tony had a song called If I Had No Loot. Mm. And this was, so this is 1993. This is Deep Cuts. And it was, that was when I graduated high school. So, of course, I was listening to the radio all the time. And that was when a lot of stuff started getting bleeped off the radio. And in the background of If I Had No Loot, there is a character who says, and you can new jack swing on my nuts over. (laughs) And it's not bleeped out. It's great. It's my favorite part of the whole song because it makes me laugh so hard. So my memories of Tony, Tony, Tony are very, very visceral and deep and connected to high school. So I think what that was, was like a a, a play on the the band name. Okay. I think, I could be wrong. I think that there are a lot of ways in which the way some of the queer and gender fluid characters would be written differently now. I think part of that is just language evolving. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I I just think we have a different vocabulary around which to talk about gender fluidity today. And so again, I don't say any of this as like a criticism of these authors, because I do think that these authors in 2006, I mean, at the risk of, like, they seem fairly woke. I know that's not necessarily always the best word, but I think it's a good way to sort of sum up what I'm trying to get at here, which is that these authors were very comfortable being a lot more progressive than their 
peers at this point. And they were talking about things and writing about things that a lot of other YA authors were not in 2006. I just think it's it's interesting if we could fast forward to 2020 and make them like equally progressive today, the language around it would be much different. And I think that's cool to think about. Oh, for sure. What's one, one thing I was thinking about when I was looking over my notes and looking over like the things I'd written down for this podcast is I have a book um, that I was sent a copy of called Camp. Mm. And it is by Elsie Rosen. And it's about a queer summer camp for queer teens. And it's all about queer identity and one character becoming more butcher masculine to appeal to another character. And it's deeply nuanced and so interesting. And you compare that level of characterization and the way in which even the, the different kinds of queerness are explored in this one book compared to this book written so many years earlier. It's a, it's like you said, it's a completely different vocabulary. And I think that it would have been probably written quite differently in a number of ways, especially the idea of staying out all night and not being able to get home and all of the things that are true at that time. Like she has to take phone calls, but she can't get cell service on the subway. I don't even think that's the case anymore. I think there is cell service on the subway now. Yeah, like and there's a payphone. There's a payphone in this yes! book. There's <laughs> like multiple payphone things. Yeah. Oreos, however, Oreos from the bodega are always often stale. It's true. It's time. That's a timeless fact of living in it's, New York. It's timeless. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. T- and I feel like it's also the old packaging. Like I remember when I would go into bodegas in New York, generally the cookies and other snack foods, like the packaging would maybe be the same design from like a few years ago it wouldn't be like the same design of an Oreo package that you would see in a grocery store. It, it would be from a couple of years ago, which was always sort of a fun and weird throwback and stale, as you mentioned. When you're when you're not sober, you don't care. And good, what's interesting is, is both of these kids are sober the whole time. They don't drink. Yeah, I wanted to talk about that straight edge aspect. So they talk about both being part of this straight edge movement. And I pulled out one quote from Nora where she's talking about Nick. And for a little context, so they're they're connected by Nick's ex-girlfriend, Tris. Tris and Nora went to school together. They kind of seem to have been frenemies. Um, they were childhood friends. And as often happens, I think as teenagers, they grew apart and had some drama, but she was aware of Nick through Tris. And obviously now Nick and Tris have broken up. Nick is heartbroken. And Nora reflects. She says, Tris dated a straight-edged boy and one who says, please. How did he survive her without being drunk or stoned like the rest of them? I'm not (laughs) sure whether to admire or pity Nick for being a fellow straight-edge, but I'm stoked too. I'm on a date with a guy who can have a good time without trying to get wasted. The universe is full of surprises. Respect to Tris. And I do remember the straight edge thing being like a big deal in the mid aughts when I was in high school. Like people used that phrase a lot. It's not a phrase I hear as much now, no. um, but I thought it was interesting that it played a pretty prominent role in this book. The way that I remember kids talking about being straight edge is the way that people talk about being vegan now. Mm-hmm. That's like true. There's, there, there's people who are like, yeah, you know, I'm vegan. And there's people who are like, I am vegan. Let me tell you all about it. And it's right. like, oh, I don't need to know this much. The thing that they're so casual about it is fascinating. I also think that they both have a really good reason for being who they are. And even though they're both hurting and unsure and coming to grips with things and they learn a lot about it themselves in that in the course of this one night, 
they also have a very, very firm sense of self. And I loved that about them. Yeah, I loved that too. And I, I remember in high school, I was not a drinker or a partier in high school. And I remember I didn't, I really had no desire to drink in high school. I really liked being in control of myself. I liked to know who I was at all times. And I just really wasn't in a circle of people that were drinking or going to those kinds of parties anyway. So it just like wasn't an option for me so much. I remember just in the pop culture that I was consuming at that time, so many of the kids that were cool were kids that drank and kids that went out to parties. Mm -hmm. And I love that this is a book about two kids who are very clearly cool, like by all other markers, like they're really interesting, cool, independent, confident teens Mm -hmm. and drinking is taken totally out of the equation. And I do think that that sets this book apart from a lot of other media from this time period that that kids were consuming. And it's another reason that I wish that I'd read it as a kid, not because I like needed to be part of sort of like an explicit straight edge group, but because it just would have been nice to be reminded that I wasn't the only one who wasn't necessarily prioritizing drinking, smoking, or partying as part of my social circle. I had friends that did those things and I didn't have a problem with it, but Mm -hmm. I just think I, I was always looking for, role models feels like the wrong word. I was always looking for characters who shared that with me because I was such a reader and I yeah I was just trying to befriend people that like I resonated with and that piece of both Nick and Nora really would have resonated me when I was a teenager myself. I, I think that one of the things that works so well and makes this book hold up after this many years is that there are multiple ways in which readers at any age but especially the age at which this book is aimed will see unique portrayals of people that you don't necessarily get to see in YA, especially at that time. Now it's a completely different story. With this book, you saw kids who were casually queer. You saw Nick, who knew he wanted to do something with music, who knew he was deeply into the music that he made and would write songs and was good at it, who knew he'd found his thing that he wanted to do. And you have Nora, who isn't necessarily sure of a lot of things, but knows music and knows that she wants to be involved in it in some way. And she knows what she wants to do. Both of these kids have been screwed up by their exes, Tris, because she was manipulative and Nora's ex, tall, tall, right? Yeah, Yeah, tall, tall, tall. because he was a manipulative, abusive jerkwad Mm -hmm. um, who preyed on her insecurities. They both, both of their exes preyed on their insecurities in a way that diminished their confidence in themselves. And they're starting to get that back, which is how when they meet each other, they fuel each other and they build each other and they make each other the best, a better version of themselves, whereas their exes tried to diminish them all the time. And then they, the, the book also allows for the representation of not drinking and not doing things that they didn't want to do because it was fine. And being in an environment was like, okay, sure. You don't have to, no big deal. Yeah. And they're just having the best time. Yeah. All of that was just so interesting. And one of the, one of the questions that you sent was, um, you know, as an adult, would you recommend this for a kid or a teen? And as a parent of teens, absolutely. But I can tell you that uh, when you tell a teen to read a book, they don't want to read it, especially if the person telling them to read it is their mom. They really don't want to hear that. I have to get real sneaky about recommending books. The, the trick is knowing what kind of book to recommend to a particular reader. Like not every book appeals to every person, but I already can think of so many people who would enjoy this story 
in the book form or the movie form, because the movie form is a little bit different, just because of the amount of nuanced and intricate representation that takes place within all the different characters. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would like to recommend this to the teens in my life. I was surprised because I have I have younger sisters and they, they're significantly younger than I am. So I kind of thought that this book maybe would have hit them at, at the right time, or maybe it would have been popular among their friends. None of them had read it, which surprised me, especially because one of my sisters is a music therapy major and is just like lives and breathes music. So I was like, you have to read this book because this is a story about two people who really share a very similar experience, not only in a music community, but just in listening to music. I mean, there's this scene where they, there's a lot of scenes where they're like chasing through all of these places in New York. And I, I loved this one part where they go to a club and they are they just, they're experiencing music and dancing in the same way. I pulled yes. out this paragraph. It says that thrum, we are moving to the music. And at the same time, we are a stillness. I am not losing myself in the barrage. I am finding her and she is, yes, she is finding me. We are yes. two people who are part of a lot more people. And at the same time, we are our own part. And there were so many paragraphs like that. I mean, honestly, when I was copying down passages that I wanted to share in our interview, I, I really could have written down like the whole book because the writing is so beautiful. But there were so many moments like that where I just, I felt on both sides of, of this romance, this this connection, like we not only love music, but it, it feels the same way to each of us in our souls. And that is a very unique thing. And I think it's something that a lot of teenagers could resonate with. Music is is a unique experience for all of us at so many parts of our lives, but there's something about listening to music, I think, when you're like a teenager that it just hits you different. I really like the way that this book highlighted that. Oh, absolutely. The way in which they see each other is one of my favorite tropes in romances where two characters recognize each other on so many levels just instantly and they they recognize that they're sort of on the same frequency and that they have so much intrinsically in common and yet because they're teenagers their insecurities get in the way of having honest conversations which is also incredibly human and normal at any age it's you're so right about that yeah i i loved that and i would love to talk a little bit more about their former relationships they're like new exes nick for example sees in nora the thing that tal her ex was just completely incapable of seeing and vice versa. Nora sees in Nick the thing that his ex, Tris, was also completely incapable of seeing, which I think is really special. So one of the biggest conflicts between Nora and her ex, Cal, although there were many, is that he somehow got in her head that she is this heartless, cold, frigid person. And the word frigid is used a lot in this book, which I found really interesting. And, and I wanted to call it out because I think that was another kind of of its time concept that I am thankful that we don't hear about as much anymore. Um, but this idea that Nora has taken on this identity of being like a frigid person. And I think all too often in movies and TV, we, we get the phrase like frigid bitch, which I don't like as a phrase at all, but that's what this time period calls to mind for me. And I really... I hated that that's what she had taken on as a result of her abusive relationship with Tal. And Nick kind of like shows her in this one night, like, you're not, you're not frigid. Like you're not this heartless, cold person. I love that, especially right now, because with the release of uh, Cardi B and Meg Megan Thee Stallion's, is it, I've never heard it said out loud, WAP? Yeah, yeah. Okay, but, fine. Yeah, Whatever. Yeah. That works. So um, the perils of reading things, but, and listening to things, but not talking about them. Yes. Anyway. Here we are talking about them. 
Right. One of the fascinating conversations and heartbreaking conversations is the number of women who I saw in my Twitter timeline talking with Dr. Jen Gunter, who is a gynecologist, about how they were shamed for the way their bodies respond sexually. Mm-hmm. And and that is still a thing that is used and deployed against women all the time. So Tall's technique is not new. It is very old and it's still crap and he's horrible. So whether or not you're super responsive or you know, you're a quote unquote frigid, the problem is you. It's never the person you're with. Ugh, gross. 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 <laughs> and I wish that the, the the bad behavior and the shitty behavior had been labeled as shitty and bad, but it was clear enough that it did damage and that they needed to work on getting over what a shitty person had done to them. Wait, am I allowed to curse? Am I allowed oh, to curse? Okay. I mean, okay. it's shit she read, so Sarah, so go That's right, right that's ahead. right. Yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah. Should have asked. Feel free. But at the same time, not... Okay, so this part I love. This bit of a spoiler. This happens late in the book. But... Not only does Nick break through this internal message that she has locked herself in with, like, I'm I'm wrong, I'm frigid, I'm sexually cold, I'm heartless, which is utterly not true. But she has a seriously awesome bi makeout session in the bathroom with Tris. Like, that this she woman does. Is, okay, first of all, hell yes to buy rep in 2006 in a YA book. Thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you. That's amazing. But wait, seriously, this is a thing you think about yourself and you are making out in the bathroom with a with with a, someone that you have this really uh, ambivalent relationship with. Yep. OK, no, that person's wrong. <laughs> and then when she realizes, wait, he was wrong about that. Maybe he was wrong about lots and lots and lots of other things. One thing the movie does make very clear is what an absolute tool he is. Like he really reveals his whole backside in the movie at the end. In the book, it's not as clear. But the way in which sexuality is leveraged against girls is Unfortunately, so common. And while you don't necessarily, you don't necessarily get to go out all night and figure out your sexuality, which would be pretty great if more people could do that. If so everybody could do that just to work right. it out, I mean, figure, I think that would be, the world would be a better are. place. Yeah. Okay, be who you are. It's great. Be exactly <laughs> who you are. You're perfect the way you are. Go be you. The way in which Tal's damage was undermined by multiple characters made me so happy. Yeah, he was clearly, like, he was the dope in this situation. Like, nobody else can see what he seems to have seen in his relationship with Nora. And I just like the way that this book normalizes all kinds of physical intimacy. Like, yes, you, you. you mentioned the, the buy makeout scene in the bathroom stall, but one of my favorite moments is when one of Nick's bandmates is talking about how the Beatles really got it right, like, with sexy songs, with the song, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and how writing a song about holding someone's hand is actually, like, the hottest thing and the most intimate thing you can do. So I just think the fact that this book, in addition to normalizing queer relationships, normalizing language around sexuality it also normalizes like everything from just like sweetly holding hands with someone to making out with a girl that you're not sure that you even like in the bathroom stall like all of those things are cool and casual and totally acceptable in this book because people do them safely i think that this would be a much different conversation if maybe there were like unsafe behaviors displayed in this book but there aren't everybody's just kind of like figuring it out and there's a wide spectrum of what that looks like for all of the characters and there's the fact that even though her best friend has a serious problem with with binge drinking and really damaging behavior by putting herself in repeated unsafe situations there's still that 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 safe person in Nora even though it's an unfair position to put her in and her friend kind of acknowledges it later even the characters that are exhibiting behaviors that are a normal teenage things but also b dangerous they're looked out for 
like like you said earlier, th- this is a very safe world for risks to be taken. It's very comforting. Yeah, I really liked that's a good way to capture it. I really liked that. So if we if we flip this conversation and we look at Nick's ex-girlfriend, Tris, who just seems, I mean, she has some endearing moments in the book, and we find out that Tris really showed up for Nora when she needed her a few times in their friendship. Tris is she's just terrible. I mean, she's just so irritating. Um, and I, you get the sense that she really ripped Nick's heart out in like the most brutal way. She the, really did. In the way that only like a first love in high school can do. Like we all have experienced that to some degree. And, and this feeling, I, I wanted to actually share this quote from the beginning chapter because I, I just thought it's like so relatable. When Nick is performing, he says, my eye is still used to searching for her in a crowd. My breath mm-hmm. is still used to catching when I see her and the light is angled just right. My body is still used to hers moving next to mine. That moment when you see your ex for the first time when you have been so heartbroken and you have to shut off that part of you that would otherwise have been excited to see them. It is the strangest feeling ever. That's how I felt. Like I remember the first time that I saw someone who had broken my heart and having to stop myself from like being like, they're here. I have to go say hi because I had to shut off the part of me that had had a crush on them. I had to shut off the part of me that had had a relationship with them. I had to shut off all of these versions of myself that I had kind of like created in my imagination when we were together and even when we were kind of like courting and thinking about being together. And I just think that the way David Levithan writes about that experience, this sounds dramatic, but it kind of like pierced me. Like it just, it really hit me hard. That's one of the things that I love about reading YA is that it is about piercing because like I explained this to my kids, like I said, I'm 45. So the, if you imagine emotional experience as a pool, but the pool of my emotional experience is very large because I've been around for 45 years. I've had 45 years of emotional experiences or, you know, you could say maybe 40 given that I probably have earliest memories from when I'm around five. Mm -hmm. But something happens and it's going to make some waves. It takes a really big impact to make really big waves on a pool that's big. But when you're 15 or 16 or 17, your pool of emotional experience is much smaller and you also have hormones, which tend to make it into a wave pool already. Everything can feel so intense. Everything can feel so visceral and piercing and immediate and hard because, you know, you're figuring out who you are at that age. That's really hard work. That piercing feeling is something that I love that I encounter even when I'm reading a YA and I'm no longer of the the target demographic. It still pierces me too. I love that. I love that analogy about the emotional pool that's so everything in high school it just breaks you down every little thing like even missing eye contact with somebody like Mm -hmm. if you have a crush on somebody and you think you're making eye contact with them and they look away that I mean that'll mess you up for a couple hours like it's it's really heavy everything that happens at that time in your life it's so true and how much of a relationship when it ends is just the habit of looking for that person Mm -hmm. right like the habit of looking for that person in a room or the habit of oh, I saw this funny thing. I know I have to tell them. It's like rewriting and rewiring your brain to do a different set of habits. And the longer you've been doing those things, the harder it is to stop. And and it's painful when you come up against the realization that that's not something you do anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the thing about Nick and Tris is that it's so obvious that Nick just like worshipped her, just worshipped the ground she walked on. And the way that Nora talks about Tris 
she expresses that she seems very beautiful. She's like very curvy. She has a great body. Like these are the images that we get about Tris from Nora. And it seems as though this is maybe the first person that Nick has ever been with. And he probably maybe feels a little out of his league being with her in the way that I think often we all feel in our early relationships. Like how did this person choose to be with me? Like this is so amazing. And she just seems to have taken him for granted. Like he does, Mm -hmm. he does so much for her. He has this chivalrous quality about him. Like he's always doing these really small gentlemanly gestures that really blow Nora away, but that Tris seems to have not appreciated at all. And even things like his music, like she just seems to have had no regard for his artistry. And one of my favorite moments in the book was it was near the end and Nora had discovered Nick's breakup mix for Tris, which in itself I loved. Like a breakup mix was such a thing. And he asks her what her favorite song was. And the song that she names is a song that he wrote for Tris. And that just like broke me into a million little pieces. And it was so sweet. The fact that, that she saw how much that meant to him and saw like the emotional labor it had taken for him to write that song. And, and she just appreciated it without him even asking. Like it wasn't even for her. He didn't write the song for Nora. He wrote it for his ex-girlfriend, but it still meant something to her and oh I just I feel like I could go on about it forever but I really loved it I loved it so much and he says and I'm moved it's so beautiful not what I wrote but to have it given back like this to have her remember the words and the tune to hear it in her voice I was like okay I'm done I'm done (sighs) done It's very melty. So melty. I just love that she saw him. And I think she saw him from the beginning. Like it really didn't take long for her to just get him. Yes. And that she, by being appreciative of who he is and what he does, overwrites and re- reimagines the things that up until that moment were deeply painful for him mm-hmm. that she gave it back to him it's just that oh gosh so good <laughs> so good right because we can imagine the moment when he like I, I feel so sad to think about but I just have this mental image of like Tris sitting on his bed or something and him being like I have something to give you and he like gets his guitar and he's like okay are you ready I'm about to play you a song and he is like so into it and she's like on her phone like that's kind of how I picture this whole thing going down mm-hmm. and it's it's just, it's so special that, that Nora, it didn't have to, it had nothing to do with her. She has no selfish motive whatsoever. She just appreciates that he has the capacity to feel at that level. Yes. And that he, he is still going to be into music, even though the, that part of it is painful. Yes. Yes. They're Ugh. just so united in that, in that love of music whether it's guiding them through a personal moment in real time mm-hmm. or if it's just like the world. Like they they are able to look at and appreciate music at both the micro and the macro and the personal and the general levels, which I think is unique about both of them. Oh, for sure. And that they, they both speak that language of music, her from the behind the scenes industry side and him from the musician and trying to make it and playing club side. They both speak that language. Yeah. And finally, at the end, she reveals who her dad is. And yes. she's been hiding it the whole time. Like you can tell she's been burned one too many times by people that only really want to spend time with her because she has this father that's so powerful in the industry. She can see that Nick is a musician. Like I'm sure she's worried that knowing that she has access to the music industry could maybe change the tone of their meeting or or make his intentions a little bit less genuine. And when she tells him he doesn't even know who she's talking about, he's like, oh, okay. (laughs) 
Yep. It's like, uh, great. Cool. Cool. Nice. Okay. Sure. <laughs> it wasn't even just him saying, oh, that's so cool, but whatever. It was him being like, I, that uh, doesn't even mean anything to me whatsoever. And that also brings up something that you made me think of when you were talking about how Tris took advantage of him. There's a power differential in the different relationships in this book. Who has it and who doesn't? Who has emotional power over another character? Who has more influence than another character? People are using Nora because of who her dad is, and she has to be careful about that. And Tris is using Nick to make herself feel better. And when she can't do that anymore, she's really annoyed. And, you know, Nora's friend is using her as a safety net so she can not face her problems in a, in, a, in a way that she needs to. With Nick and with Nora, the power differential is balanced. Like, he feels insecure about his music and, and the emotional pain, and he's going through the, the aftermath of a bad breakup. She gets that. She's in the same place. She can talk to him about his music in a way that re- redefines it. And he can talk to her about, about, her, about her sexuality in a way that undoes the, some of the damage that Tal did. The power differential between them balances out, especially because he doesn't know who her dad is, and he really doesn't care. Yeah. They're just like two kids frolicking around New York who love music. Like, it's not mm-hmm. important to him. what she can give him and she's very used to having relationships built around what she can offer or how she can serve those other people yes and the way in which they support each other only strengthens that balance yes absolutely so there's there's a very steamy makeout scene in a hotel like vending machine ice machine room that i would say is worth reading this book for and it gets the details of that hotel so right like the check-in is on the eighth floor and you do have to go (laughs) up these weird ass elevators however you can't pick a floor in those elevators you have to tell it what floor you're going to and then it tells you which elevator to take yeah this would be the marriott in, in times square but that not only was the setting so real, but that scene was ridiculous. It was it was ridiculous. I I really enjoyed it. <laughs> I don't read a lot of romance. I know that you are you read a lot of romance, so I was I was anxious I, to get your take on that scene because I was like, wow, I think this is a really good romance scene. <laughs> it's super hot. It's really unexpected, and it it works within the setting because. They are super into each other in that moment, and they need to find a place to go be into each other, and the place that they find is unexpected. But then they're interrupted, and it's hilarious. It's brilliant. It's really brilliantly done. Is that scene played out in the movie as well? Because I was like, this this scene has to be in the movie word for word. Like, it just felt too perfect not to put on film. I don't remember. Okay, we'll both have to watch. Yeah, I I don't remember. I just remember certain scenes from the beginning and the end, but I don't. I I, it has to be. It has to. I mean, so much of this book just was made to be turned into a movie. So I I have to watch the movie now that we've talked um, more about the book. But as we start to wind down, I would love to get your take on the ending. I related to Nora so much in the ending moments because she and Nick have kind of spent this whole book figuring out if this is like a viable friendship, a viable relationship. They come from these. Two different worlds. Does it really make sense to try to pursue a relationship with somebody after just one night with them? Like, does this make sense at all? And they're trying to get home, and it's the early, early, early morning in New York City. And anybody who has tried to get on a subway in the early, early, early hours in New York City knows that trains are often few and far between. So they're getting ready to jump on the subway to get closer to home. The the train is pulling into the station, and as she puts her card in, she sees that she has insufficient fare. So if they're going to make the subway, she's going to have to jump over the turnstile. 
Um, yep. And Nick's encouraging her to do that. And I am the number one rule following girl. Like <laughs> being put in this situation would make me so hot in, in the least like sexy way possible. I would just be sweating. I'd be like, oh my, really? Like I have watched people jump over these turnstiles. I have judged them. Now you want me to do it myself? And I sort of like copied down every every line from this last section. She says, I hesitate even though I know my wavering could cost us the approaching train. If I make this jump, then this is real. He is real. I will have broken the law for him and that will bind us together forever. Outlaws like Bonnie and Clyde. And look how that worked out for them. If I do this, it will be like jumping into the middle of the mosh pit. Dangerous, exhilarating, terrifying. It's only a fucking turnstile. But what if I don't make it to the other side? Some people never make it out of the mosh alive. And then Nick says, are we in this or not? (laughs) And she jumps. It reminded me a little bit of that moment in Gilmore Girls, the you jump, I jump Jack moment, which I Mm -hmm. always love. But I, I loved this last scene. And then we don't really know what happens. Like we see her jump over the turnstile. It just says, ready, set, jump. And then the book is over. But Mm -hmm. it's meant to symbolize this idea that like, she is open to what this new relationship could mean, even if they've spent the vast majority of this night kind of wavering about that. Yes. And the, also that teen habit of making an, um, um, what otherwise would be a mundane moment into something deeply, deeply important. Totally. And I, I think that one of the risks you take in looking at this book as a romance, one of the risks you take as a, as a, as a creator in making a story happen on one night is that you have to build a lot of foundation for the happy ever after or the happy for now to be believable. You're trying to convince the reader that these people are going to be together mm. because that's part of the romance of, of that's, that's kind of the job of the romance to convince these people, to convince you that these people are going to be together. I think that this book does a really good job in one night of convincing me that these people are going to be together, if not forever, then for a really long time. Yeah, I bought it for sure. I was like not yeah. worried at all. I mean, I, I read a bunch of essays and reviews about the book that were like, we're left not knowing what happens. I was like, no, we all know what happens. No, like they're going to be I know together. what happens. Yeah. yeah, they're together. They're going to, they're, they're, they are teamed up. And Sometimes that's, you know, weird intervention like uh, Nora's father intervening in her college non-decision. And even though he's right, she's mad about it. There are some things where they're going to be taken care of by larger forces or, or, or people with larger influence, but they are absolutely going to be together. Like, I have no doubt about that. Yeah. And that, it, I felt comfortable with the way the book ended. Like when I turned that last page, I was like, I'm happy with how this ended. I was very satisfied, even though we didn't get like a super explicit epilogue about like what happens next. I knew it was going to be okay and that they were going to be happy. Yeah. And that they were going to look after each other in a way that made them grow into better and better versions of themselves. Like they found the person who's going to make them the better version of themselves every day. Yes, I totally agree. And isn't that what all great relationships should do? Yeah, certainly good romances. I think so. Well, I have to tell you that when I finished this book, I really loved the writing. I loved the storytelling, but there were parts of it that I was just, for some reason, like I said, I was just having trouble following some of the jumps in the story, but talking to you has made me decide that I just loved it. Oh. I loved it. So I would love if you could sort of capture maybe how this reading experience differed from the last time you read the book, if at all. It sounds like it did hold up. But I would love if you could share any more thoughts, um, maybe about comparing the two the two reading experiences. Oh, it, it, it's interesting because you were saying earlier that it's hard to hold your concentration. Your brain brains are tired. Brains are doing so much work right now. 
brains are exhausted with the amount of information and fear and management brains are being asked to do with with the quarantines and with the pandemic. So it makes sense that, you know, taking on a new creative endeavor and, and building a world in your imagination through a book is really hard. And that's why there's a lot of rereading going on. Like I'm doing a lot of rereading. I find it interesting that I read this book now and I read this book when I had a, an infant because I was just as tired then, <laughs> just as tired then and as much, just as much time to build a world in my head, which was not time at all. I think for me, the comparative experience is interesting because I remember the moments of, oh yeah, this book is really good because it has that one moment. And the after the afterglow of this book is tangible. It was almost the same this many years later. Mm. I think when I read it, I don't have clear memories of the whole book. I just have memories of, oh, I remember I was on the couch when I read this book. And I remember recording the review because I had to go to a studio. So that was a memorable experience. I just remember the feeling that the book gave me and the feeling then and now was the same. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I'm so glad to hear that. I'm so glad that you enjoyed it the second time around. And again, thank you so much for rereading it for the show. Oh, my pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Like I finished it and I was like, ah, that's still a good book. Yes. It's always a relief when that happens. Definitely. Other than Nick and Nora, what have you been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners? There are no rules. It can be anything that you've been reading and loving. Okay. So let's see. I mentioned rereading. I have been rereading the Murderbot series by Martha Wells, which is about a human artificial intelligence construct. So it's a blend of both who is in a a security unit expected to provide security on contracted missions, either to mine something or research something. And it has a governor module in its head that will harm it or kill it if it doesn't immediately comply with directives. Hmm. And Murderbot figures out how to hack its governor module and disable it and realizes it is free to do whatever it wants. But instead, it just watches about four to five years of unlimited media, television, movies, books, audiobooks, music, everything. It just it just enjoys media and continues to do its job for the company that owns it until it has a mission with a group of people who learn that it is autonomous and also help it figure out that it can make choices that are different from the things that it's always done. Hmm. So the series is four novellas and a novel. The novel came out earlier in 2020. And it's really a love story about learning how to choose what kind of life you want. And also Murderbot's basic demeanor is humans are really annoying and I'd really like to go back to watching TV right now. And that is a feeling I can identify with on a number of levels. Relatable. (laughs) Relatable. So I've been rereading that because, like I said, my brain is tired and hanging out in this world and re-enjoying the story, if I read it or then I listen to the audiobook, it's a different experience. So I'm I'm rereading or or listening to books that I've already read. A new book, two new books that I want to tell you about are one is When No One Is Watching by Alyssa Cole, which is a thriller about the gentrification of a Brooklyn neighborhood as longtime residents start disappearing. And the heroine is unsure whether or not she's imagining things or if it really is some sort of nefarious plot to get rid of people because property values are going up. So it was pitched as Rear Window meets Get Out, and that's a really good pitch because that kind of encapsulates what it is. It has this wonderful, ominous, creepy feeling of, am I imagining this or is this really happening? Is this real or am I just, am I just, this is, no, I'm just being silly. There's no way this is happening. But no, something really strange is happening. So interesting. 
wonderful creepy dread and a, and a secondary romance, which I liked. The other book that I read and I really liked and I'm really excited to come out this fall is Hench by Natalie Zena Walshots. I think I'm saying that right. It is... So you remember the movie... The Incredibles, where there's superheroes and they're yeah. just part of the world. It's like that. That That is the case. There are superheroes and supervillains, and the heroine of Hench is a temp who learns that it's much more lucrative to work for the villains, even though life expectancy can be short. And she becomes a henchman for a villain after working a temp job for another villain, and a hero hurts her and damages her um, ability to, t- to take care of herself and her ability to get her job done. And she starts tracking the damage that heroes do and questioning whether or not they're heroes at all is very prescient, very, very applicable, but also really, really good in terms of adventure story. Oh, that sounds so cool. Thank you for those recommendations. You're very welcome. I will include links to those in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to Nick and Nora's infinite playlist. And Sarah, I will include links to all of your many projects. There are so many. So we have your podcast, Smart Podcast, Trashy Books. We have your blog, Smart Bitches, Trashy Books. I love the names of everything you do. We have your books, Everything I Know About Love, I Learned from Romance Novels. We have your book, Lighting the Flames. We have your book, Beyond Heaving Bosoms, The Smart Bitches Guide to Romance Novels. I I told you I want to plug everything you do because even just saying the names of all of these things, it makes me so happy. Thank you. I'm really glad to hear that. Like, I just want to say the names. They're fun. Thank you. Because I I, uh, I tend to give things really long names, and I feel like I should no longer name things because my names are too long. No, please keep naming things. <laughs> I love them all. I love the work you do, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join me on SSR today. Thank you so much. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and happy birthday. Oh, thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast. 